The Weekend. Variety. Wireless. Just because I think it might help, uh, the name of the last battle New Zealanders were involved in, just about the last battle of World War One, ahead of Armistice on the 11th of November, uh, Le Quenoir, it's spelt, nobody's helping you, and you might want to look it up, L-E, then second word, Q-U-E-S-N-O-Y, Q-U-E-S-N-O-Y, one of New Zealand's most successful uh, military affairs, and yet, I think it was more than 100, 180 or so, New Zealanders died in that conflict, including my great-uncle. Almost got through, but not quite. Dear, oh dear, oh dear, well, you could have been shot on day one. OK, Skeptical Thoughts with Mark Honeychurch coming up. on Just on this uh, subject of World War One, Jesus Make It Stop, part six. For November the 4th, the final will be next week. Glenn Harper, military historian, will walk us through what happened this week, uh, head, uh, this week, 100 years ago, on the Western Front and elsewhere as well. There are some fascinating stories. And we'll give him all the time he wants next week for that big day. The series is a podcast and it's going to be wheeled out on Monday uh, because we think he's worth it and it's a groovy thing. Also, our poetry series. How do you reckon it's going? Uh, Steve Braunius is in this evening to read us a couple of poems from a book. He's actually doing a bit of um, a bit of publicity for his book on poetry. He's gathered a whole lot of poems from uh, people in New Zealand. He reads a couple of his favourites. It's called The Friday Poem. It's published by Lunch and Sausage Publishing. It's worth $25, and you can get it at any good bookstore. There you go. That's the uh, marketing side of things done for Steve Braunius, but he's a good guy, and why not? Also on a World War I theme, General Freiburg. He is the focus for our outsider tale this evening after 11 o'clock, that with Gerard Hindmarsh. Okay, time for Skeptical Thoughts with Mark Honeychurch of New Zealand Skeptics. Bullshit. You were on the telly this week, Mark. I was, yeah, just briefly. Somebody told me that they were lucky they didn't blink because they would have missed me. But um, for a few seconds, I got onto the TV and it was very nice. And you got your say, you got a speaking role, uh, which was great. Um, we can hear you at the end of this. Can we just hear what was going on? We'll play that piece of audio. Here, here we go. The protests at Parliament, you get a few of the um, points of view from those uh, protesting there, at least taking part. And this is... Uh, people upset that they're taking the word Jesus and Christ out of the parliamentary prayer. We're standing up for righteous here today. That's what we're standing up for, guys. For Jesus Christ. I think he needs to hear the voice of the people. My message to him is that, um, you know, God, God loves him. And but God sees what he's doing. And one man decides he doesn't want to have Jesus' names in a prayer. We're here to say, hey, you know, you need to listen to the people. Respectfully, Mr Mallard, please, at the request of the people in this nation, uh, reinstate the name of Jesus Christ to the parliamentary prayer. 
people have said before, if you're going to make a change, let's have Parliament decide, not one person. I think it's a right to have the word God in there. I think having Jesus Christ was very specific to one faith. I just don't happen to think that there's a role for the church and government or government in the church. Uh, it would be ridiculous to try and mention all the gods in prayer, so how about maybe no religious belief in Parliament? All right, that was you at the end. Congratulations, Mark Honeychurch. What was it like? Yeah, it, it was pretty good. So um, it was raining, unfortunately, but um, luckily that didn't stop a few of us atheists turning up. We we had about 15 of us there carrying placards, standing respectfully outside of Parliament on public property. Um, we got to chat with people, which was really nice. Um, we were looking in to see what was going on inside Parliament. They had a couple of big screens. Things seemed to be pretty well bankrolled, to be quite honest. They were they were well set up in there. We saw a few Make America Great Again hats, which was a mm. little bit surprising. Um, a bunch of bikers in leathers, which we were expecting, and they we chatted with a few of them. They seemed to be really nice people. Um, and the banners, there were banners all over the place. Um, one of them was calling Trevor Mallard a dishonourable Judas, which I thought was a, a little bit over the top, to be quite honest. Oh, yeah. Although without Judas, you don't get the full story of Jesus, do you? <laughs> well, I suppose he not. He needs to but be yeah. dobbed in by somebody. <laughs> Otherwise, go. he'll probably live a full life yeah. and be happy and have kids or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, we were there with our placards, a whole bunch of funny placards with uh, Thor and Cthulhu, the dude from the Big Lebowski, the flying spaghetti monster. Um, Donald Trump was even on one um, that said, make New Zealand a theocracy again. Um, so that fit well with the people that had their MAGA hats on, which was great. And we were we were arguing jokingly that all religions should be in prayer, not just the Jesus that Christians are asking for, but all these other religions. Well, and obviously the serious point was that we, we think it's better that no religions are mentioned in Parliament, that the best way to make it fair is to be secular, is to leave religious belief out of Parliament, out of parliamentary proceedings, and let it be a private thing that people can choose to do, but not something that's there for everybody, and certainly not something that only has one religious belief as part of it. Um, so, yeah, as I said, we, we had a good time chatting with people. They generally seem to be fairly happy. I was a bit surprised to read in a stuff article they described us as heckling. It was a journalist called Thomas Manch, who I've chatted to before. Seems quite nice, but he described us as heckling. And as far as I know, heckling is when you try and stop someone from talking or interrupt them when they're talking by shouting at them and cajoling them. And that's certainly not what we were doing. We were nowhere near the speaker's. We were not trying to disrupt events. We were just there for a bit of fun and trying to make a, a serious point at the same time. Um, had loads of people taking pictures of us. Um, people walking from one side to the other trying to read all our signs and trying to figure out what the various gods were that we were there arguing for. Mm. Um, but yeah, it was it was really enjoyable. And the conversation was interesting because quite a few of the people that we talked to, and as atheists, we're, we're generally happy to talk about our lack of belief and um, explain to people why we don't believe and ask them why they believe. But so a few of these conversations went on and something that came up again and again was it, it turned out a lot of the people there didn't actually think it was fair to just have Jesus in the prayer. Uh, mm. <laughs> and at first, that was a little bit surprising. It's like, well, why are you here for a rally arguing that Jesus should be back in prayer when as soon as we talk with you, you agree with us that it's unfair that just Jesus is mentioned and maybe it's better that there's, there's no religious mention in prayer at all, that not one deity gets a look in. Um, and from what I can tell, it seems like maybe... 
for a lot of people, turning up to this rally was just more of a general thing, more of being able to show their belief, their piety, their desire to um, show just how fervently they believe in their God. Mm. And they hadn't actually gone so far as to think about what the march was for and whether they agreed with it, which was kind of interesting. They're just there for Jesus. And the thing about, well, God's still in this prayer. Which one? Isn't it? It's like just a general God. What's, why do we have a prayer? <laughs> yeah, so there is, there is God, and it does mention a singular God. So although this is more inclusive now, um, because obviously it covers the monotheistic gods, it's not covering any pluralistic religions. Bad so, like Hindus. Yeah, religions like Hinduism, which has many, many gods, they, they still don't get a look in. And obviously it's not respectful to um, atheism and uh, people that don't believe, because it is, it is a positive thing talking about gods. And I think maybe we've got um, an audio clip about another argument I heard, which was the argument of Christian heritage. Oh, yeah, it's, it's regarding the values, yeah, I think this is it, here we go. It's a legacy, it's the, uh, the principles and the values that we're up in this nation are based on our Christian Judea roots. We don't want that dismantled or destroyed. So, for instance, the Muslims come in and they say, listen, don't take the name of Jesus Christ out. Where's the integrity in that? Because once you do that, then what God are we talking about? So, so others, people coming in, expect us to uphold our values and stick by them. Yeah, they, they actually appreciate it. Not sure they do. Um. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that bit. I'd, I'd like to see evidence that you know Muslims have been telling him this. It seems a little bit unlikely, but that argument as well that this is something that should be the case because it has been the case. I totally accept that when parts of New Zealand were established, certainly Parliament 150 years or more ago, and so on. Um, when when that kind of thing happened. Yes, it was based on Christian values. It was done by Christian people. But, of course, that's because everybody was a Christian. Yeah, there's only game in town. <laughs> yeah, there was, there was no escaping it. It's, it's like a similar argument you hear from religious people that science is a Christian thing because the people that started the major branches of science, they were all believers. Again, it's because it was long enough ago that there wasn't really anybody around that didn't believe in God. So it's kind of just incidental. It's like mentioning that they all have two legs. It, you know, it, it's a given that that's going to be how it was back then. And beyond that, the idea that because that's how it was, that's how it should continue to be. I, I don't get that. I guess it's part of that is-ought distinction. Well, a, lo um, a, lo a lot of people from the Christian side of things do say that it's the values. It's like the uh, the Ten Commandments, the, the teachings of Christ are enshrined in our laws. I kind of hope not. I mean, as far as I can tell, uh, it's the, the Enlightenment it got the church actually had to drag it kicking and screaming to agree to major changes that give us the freedoms that we have today. Certainly. I mean, you know, if you just take the Ten Commandments, then it's not what most people even think the Ten Commandments are. No. Way too many of them are interested just in the idea of God being the only God and us being kind to God. Mm. Um, and not enough of them are, are dealing with how humans should interact with other humans. And, of course, if you then extend to looking at the rest of the Bible... It's a whole grab bag of good, bad, and just plain weird. Mm. Uh, it's not the kind of thing you want to base a morality on, a legal system on, and it's not what New Zealand's done. It's not what any Western country has done. We've based it on common sense, and it turns out that sometimes common sense 
aligns with what was said in the Bible, but that doesn't mean it comes from the Bible. We were not murdering each other en masse before Christianity came about, before Judaism, mm. because if we were murdering each other en masse, there wouldn't be humanity around anymore. Well, it seems um, as though there was also a time when people were stoned to death for gathering sticks on a Sunday or wearing clothes with two types of fabric in them. Or that's laying with a man as with a woman. See, this is where we've, it's, we've had to drag the church kicking and screaming towards yeah, this. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. I mean, there, there are certain places where the rules that Christianity has and other religions have, and the, these are rules that people are still trying to promote, promote today, are some of those rules that seem particularly cruel and not really understanding of, of where we've got with modern human rights and um, the belief that most people hold that everybody deserves fair treatment. And uh, you're right. I mean, the, the number of rules in the Bible and other holy texts that just don't seem to get that. It's, it's surprising. Oh. And I'd love to see religious people say, OK, we got it wrong or let's just not focus on that. Let's focus on other stuff. But so often it is the Christians that are pushing that gay people shouldn't be given equal rights and so on and so forth. And that's really unfortunate. Yeah, it is. And also, this, uh, well, I really don't know why we've got a prayer at the top anyway. And But the thing with the, um, the secularist attitude is it does protect the religions um, because it doesn't favour one over the other. So it would be nice if they realised um, secularism is actually your friend. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we, we don't want to be punishing religious people. We don't want religious people to not have their belief. We just want a secularist to have a fair playing field for everybody. Right. Um, and, and just as a, a last note, something I, uh, I absolutely loved was there was an earthquake later that day after the oh, rally, maybe an hour later. Uh, and I, from what I heard, the earthquake was strong enough that Parliament evacuated. And uh, unsurprisingly, a few Christians had things to say about that. There was uh, somebody on Facebook said, seems the Lord chose to remind Parliament who is in control with a big earthquake that caused them to suspend business. And the Herald printed a letter that said, is it a coincidence that the same day hundreds, maybe thousands protested outside Parliament? There was an earthquake that sent MPs scrambling from the house. Um, <laughs> I absolutely love it. You know, th this idea that that God is that God that people imagined hundreds of years ago that's using natural disasters to punish and reward and that it's not just something random. Um, and, of course, if ever it doesn't go your way, if anybody, somebody, if ever somebody gets punished by a, a natural disaster who is a believer, that's just God's mysterious way. Yeah, of course it is. And regarding the morality, a nice little piece from a show called The Atheist Experience, one of the better hosts on it, Tracy Harris. She's uh, a smart cookie. I've saved this up for such just just such occasions as these or as this one. We'll go to the break straight after this. A caller talking about morality and faith. But, but I'm not arguing on the preferential effects of people wanting morality to be true. I want, I'm saying that morality is in, in, independent of our preferences. And if, such a, if there is no God, morality technically does not exist because the universe has no purpose or direction. Right. Based on how you view it, I would have to agree. I don't view it that way, but okay. if I viewed it as you did, I would agree with you. So how do we determine which one of us is right? Show me your God. Curiosity not only killed the cat, it spawned a whole radio show. 
Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Skeptical Thoughts with Mark Honeychurch is with us and uh, the OBD2 fuel saver may not be as uh, flash as it claims. Mark, explain. <laughs> No, so this is a, a video I got sent actually while I was on air last week by a friend. Um, he's a, a little bit more credulous than me, and he'd found a video on Facebook showing a story about this device that you can use on your car. And it was one of those videos you see a lot on Facebook these days. There was no voiceover. It was just music and then large print um, subtitles, which gave the story, and you just sit there and you, you read along as the story unfolds. And this story was about a guy from Auckland called Matt Davis, who realized that through the OBD2 connector, you can reprogram your car. Um, and he realized that cars were inefficient by design and that you could increase efficiency by tuning your car. And this is a real thing. You, you can play with the ECU, the engine control unit of your car, and you can reprogram it. It's not a simple thing to do. Um, it's not something that's standardized either. It's all over the place. Different manufacturers have different standards, and even on different cars, these things are done very differently. I've had a look into it before. I've had a little play with a few tuning files, a few maps of how much fuel is given to the engine under certain conditions. And it's not simple. It's easy to mess up. Um, but this video seemed to ignore all of that and make it seem like this was the simplest thing in the world, that with this small device, you would plug it into your car. And um, from what I've read of instructions elsewhere, apparently it takes a couple of hundred kilometers to learn your driving and learn your engine and how it works. And then after that, it starts reprogramming your engine and might save you 25 to 30% on your fuel. And the video went on to talk about big oil and conspiracy and how there are people out there that don't want you to know this trick and you'd better buy this thing quickly. Uh, um, yeah. And then it has a link to buy the device. And <laughs> surprise, surprise, uh, $75. And apparently that's 50% off. Um, and I was, I was kind of interested. So I had a quick look online. I certainly wasn't going to spend, spend $75 on one of these. But it turns out you can buy exactly the same thing. It looks the same. It's got the same branding. It is the same device for $3 from AliExpress. Um, AliExpress, for those that don't know, it's an online store where you can order stuff directly from China. It gets shipped to your door. It's dirt cheap and uh, seems to be a really good service. But So because these devices are 3 bucks, I've ordered a couple of them. I did a little bit of research online as well. Um, for one, as far as the video was concerned about this Auckland guy called Matt, I could find no trace of him. I could find no trace of his company, EcoFuel. Um, it seems like the story's made up just to shift these $3 devices at a vastly inflated price of $75. And I have found people who've had a look into them and tried to figure out what they're doing. Nobody seems to know for sure, but the most likely scenario is that the only thing it's doing is flashing an LED, and that is absolutely it, that it's not reprogramming your car, it's not reading what's going on in your car and trying to figure out how best to change things. It's just got a bunch of LEDs on. There's a hole next to one of them in the case, and you can see that flashing, and it just sits there and flashes oh. to make it look like it's doing something. I, I <laughs> love a flashing LED, though. I, I wouldn't speak disparagingly of the uh, just a flashing LED. It makes you feel so good. It must be doing something in there, Mark. It's flashing. 
Absolutely. So just in case it is, as I said, I've ordered a couple. Good for you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find a friend who's got a modern car, and I'm going to get into plugging in. One of those where, you know, on the dash, it shows you your fuel efficiency. Oh, yeah. Um, so I'm going to get a friend to plug one in if, if they trust me. Drive around for a while and see if that fuel efficiency does improve. I've got another friend who has a long history in electronics, and uh, I'm going to get him to tear one down, have a look at what's inside, and try and figure out what's actually going on. Um, I, as I said, I'm pretty sure it's nothing, but it appears there's a way of using something called an Arduino, a, a piece of electronics equipment that you can program to do pretty much anything. You can program one of those to pretend it's a car, so it can pretend it's the other end of a connection. Um, for this OBT, OBD2 device, and you can plug it in and then watch the communication and see what it's actually doing. And I, I would put money on the fact that when that's plugged in, there's going to be no communication at all, that the only thing it's going to do is draw power from your battery. Not much power. It's not going to run the battery down, but it's just going to take that power in order to flash the LED and make you think that something's going on when absolutely nothing's going on. I felt nauseous this week reading the news with this follow-up. We've only got a minute, but I'm sure that will be enough to give a heads up the awful situation this woman finds herself in in Pakistan. She was acquitted of uh, the death sentence for blasphemy, but this is not good enough for a large and powerful sector of Pakistan. Yeah, absolutely. So th this is a really sad story. She has been acquitted, as you said. I think she's not been released yet because since she was acquitted, um, one of the religious political parties over there, their members have gone on strike. They've managed to convince the judiciary to negotiate with them, and they've negotiated now that she's on the exit control list, the ECL, the same list that Gulalai Ishmael is on. Um, so she can't leave the country now. And I think she needs to leave the country because her life is in danger. Already her lawyer has fled. Um, he's realized that he's probably going to be killed if he stays in the country. Um, her husband has asked for asylum in several countries. I think the UK, the US and Canada at the very least. I believe at least two countries have offered her asylum. Have we? Come on. We're, we're offering asylum to a few. Let's extend a hand to these people who obviously need it. I, I would love us to, and I would love us to somehow, one country at least, to somehow find a way to smuggle her out because yeah. it, it looks like everything's being done to make sure she stays in the country. Well, what's the SAS for, for goodness sake? <laughs> uh, all right, no, it's a horrible situation. We will keep on top of it. We've got to go. Mark Honeychurch, thank you very much. You can look up this story and, you know, just try not to cringe. It's awful. Asia Bibi is her name, A-S-I-A, -A, second name, B-I-B-I. And it's not getting a lot of coverage. I wish it was. Mark, thank you. Life. The universe. And everything in between. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. At dawn, the ridge emerges, massed and done, in the wild purple of the glowering sun, smouldering through spouts of drifting smoke that shroud the menacing scarred slope. And one by one, tanks creep and topple forward to the wire. The barrage roars and lifts, then clumsily bowed with bombs and guns and shovels and battle gear, men jostle and climb to meet the bristling fire. Lines of gray, muttering faces masked with fear, they leave their trenches, going over the top, while time ticks blank and busy on their wrists, and hope, with furtive eyes and grappling fists, flounders in the mud. 
Oh, Jesus, make it stop. Jesus, make it stop. The history of World War I leading to armistice, one of the most brutal conflicts in human history. The Great War, 1914 to 1918, armistice, will fall on Sunday, November the 11th this year, 100 years on. So if you're listening in the future to this as a historical document, it's 2018. Uh, no prizes for doing the math. Glyn Harper is Professor of War Studies at Massey University. He's been taking us through this. He's also, by the way, author of um, a large amount of excellent books on this subject and things along these lines. In the Face of the Enemy, History of the Victoria Cross in New Zealand, Dark Journey, Key Battles of the Western Front, Images of World War One, and many more besides. So, Glenn, thanks for walking us through these last weeks of World War One. Graham, it's a pleasure. Okay, we have armistice tantalisingly around the corner. Do we know it's going to happen in a week's time? Do people know? No, people don't know, and that's something we've got to keep in mind. Um, while there are some hints that the Germans are seriously contemplating uh, chucking in the towel, and you can tell also by their performance on the battlefield that they really are at the limits of their uh, of their resources and the limits of endurance. Um, it is still a, a week away, and. Um, it does, does come as a surprise to soldiers in the field, but um, we are on, on the 4th of November, which is a significant day on the Western Front and a significant day in the history of the war for a number of reasons. Um, and it is on this day that the Allied Supreme War Council does agree that to, that Wilson can, can take the lead in the armistice negotiations and that they will agree in line with his 14 points with two exceptions. And what are they? As would be expected, the British aren't too happy about the terms about freedom of the seas because um, they like to think that Britannia rules the wave, so they um, want a clause put in that, you know, freedom of the seas within certain limits. Um, and the other thing that, that they're concerned about is that one of the 14 points was that the Germans should evacuate territories that they've conquered during this war and also the two provinces of Alsace-Lorraine. The Allies agree to that, but they want to go a little bit further and they want a compensation clause put into that and that not only will they evacuate conquer territory but they will pay for any damage that they've caused during the time that they've been there so they want that to be incorporated as well so 100 years ago on this day november the 4th the allied supreme war council agrees that they can go ahead and now offer this armistice to germany on the proviso of, of those two factors are, are considered but also they have agreed 100 percent with wilson that they need to deal with democratically elected people and that the armistice above all must reduce germany's ability to renew the war so basically they give the green light on this day 100 years ago OK, so they want to talk with uh, democratically elected leaders. Uh, hello, they haven't had an election lately. What do they do? <laughs> that, uh, that causes the Germans um, some angst because they now have to uh, go around and scramble and find somebody to actually negotiate this armistice for them. Although in the, what will actually happen is there's very little negotiation. Uh, they, you know, they'll be ex 
be presented terms and basically asked to accept them. So there is a scramble. Um, you will recall that we now have a new Chancellor, Prince Max, and he's liberally minded, so he's quite happy for the armistice delegation to be headed by a political person or a political leader, but finding one is actually presents the Germans with some difficulty for several reasons. You know, their democracy and, and um, that tradition is not strong in Germany. There's no way that the Allies are going to deal with the Kaiser, so they have to scramble around, around and find a political leader. But nobody wants to do it because this is going to be an assured political death by signing the armistice that's going to end the war and admitting that Germany has actually lost it. So nobody wants to do it. Not only do they have to find somebody, but the people they ask, everybody is suddenly busy or doesn't want to do it, don't think they can and honestly represent Germany. Until they settle upon, uh, I think, a tragic figure in some ways and the, as a result of the First World War, and they find a gentleman, a person called Matthias Erzberger, who has been a member of the Catholic Centre Party for a number of years. He's a former teacher. He's a minister without a portfolio since about the end of October, but he's been advocating peace since the middle of 1917. And what makes him abundantly suitable is that he's also Germany's expert on Wilson's 14 points. So he's actually read them and understands them. And the other key factor in it is that his son has recently died of influenza. His son died of influenza in October 1918, and that basically killed off his political ambition. So he is the man for the job, you know, the right man, the right place, right time, eminently qualified. He is democratically elected. He comes from the centre party. He knows about the, the 14 points, and he doesn't have any further political ambition. So he's basically appointed, and it falls on his shoulders to be the leader of the German delegation to the armistice. There are two others. There's a, an official from the foreign ministry, uh, Count Obendorf. There are two military representatives, a major general in the army and a captain, so not even a star rating from the navy, and they are the two military representatives on the armistice delegation. And their low rank, I have to say, really annoys the Allies because they feel they should be dealing with Germany's military leaders. And in fact, the Allies are going to be represented during the armistice negotiations, put that in inverted commas, by Field Marshal Foch, the Allied Supreme Commander, and by a British Admiral, Admiral Sir Rosalind Weems. Um, so the Allies are really annoyed at that low rank, but they deal with them, and of course the Germans are led by a politically elected leader, Matthias Erzberger, who has this unenviable task of bringing the war to an end and recognising that Germany's actually lost it. It's hard to imagine. It actually sounds farcical. If it wasn't so serious, it would be hilarious trying to find someone to take this hospital pass, searching around for <laughs> someone with some democratic credentials to end the war. Absolutely. It is a bit farcical. But the other thing is that it is a hospital pass because Erzberger is seen to, and is blamed for Germany's loss. And there's all this myth about, you know, the stab in the back, that victory's been snatched, you know, away from the German army. And Erzberger becomes the target for several assassination attempts by right-wing forces and is actually assassinated in 1921. And just as a sidebar to that, his assassins aren't brought to justice until after the Second World War. Oh, I see. Oh, we're not going to look too hard for them. Regarded as a nice piece of police work.
Well, they flee uh, Germany, but then come back to live in Germany uh, for quite some time. And as I say, I'm brought to justice until 1947, which is yeah, just a farce, really. Yeah, uh, I suppose these armistice terms, it seems cruel almost to us that, oh, no, we want this, we want that, you know, rather mm. than just end the damn thing. But yep. I suppose the terms that you end on, it's going to stick. You don't want to end it and then have to start fighting it all over again, exactly. And or, I suppose, undersell the sacrifice that people have made. I oh, absolutely. You can understand why it's been a, a fraught process and why it's been difficult for Germany. And I have to say, the Germans haven't been in this position for over 100 years. You know, Prussia and Germany have not lost a war since you know they've been defeated by Napoleon in about 1806 so we're, we're going back some time and this is new territory for them um, but you know unfortunately they picked this gentleman who I think is quite an honourable man in history but gets really shabbily treated by his own country and, and Matthias Erzberger does see it as his duty to end this to end this terrible conflict and end this great sacrifice and he has no political ambitions left so this is really his last political act and it's going to cost him his life in the long run yeah in some ways a sacrifice as well from him mm -hmm. absolutely speaking of things that germans haven't experienced before mutiny in the navy at the end mm. comes as a huge shock and in some ways this is what really forces the german military to also have its own interest to end the war soon so i can actually go back and deal with this unrest and disruption and the potential for a Bolshevik-like mutiny back in Germany. Yeah. The German sailors mutiny on the 29th of October and continued into the first few days of November. And really, it's, it's no surprise that they did. I mean, they've been sitting in port for quite some time on low pay and poor rations. You know, their rations continually reduced. And then in October 1918, there is this rumour, and it's only rumour at this stage, that they're going to be invited to go on a death ride. That is, they're going to sail out all their ships of the German Navy and confront the British Hot Seas Fleet, the British Grand Fleet. So, um, you know, they really don't welcome those prospects. And that's why they decide that, no, no, we're not going to follow your orders anymore. Your officers have had very little to do with us. You officers have been living high and mighty while we've been suffering. You can go basically go to hell. And they don't follow their, their instructions. It happens, it starts on the 29th, the mutiny's put down, but then uh, it actually spreads to other ports in Germany as well, and the workers start to join in with them and support them, and uh, there is, for a moment, this small revolution in Berlin which has the danger of spreading to become another kind of Bolshevik revolution in Germany, and that is seriously alarming, not just to the German military, but also to the German politicians, because they do not want to go through the experience that Russia's gone through in 1917. And I suspect there would have been some delight encouragement from the Bolsheviks. They would like this sort of thing happening practically next door as well, wouldn't they? Oh, absolutely. You know, the, the, their aim and their goal was always to spread their revolution throughout the world, you know, and particularly starting in Germany. In fact, Lenin uh, thinks that this is... Uh, the start of the big revolution because he always predicted that it was going to happen in Germany first rather than Russia. So, you know, the communists, Bolsheviks, or whatever you like to call them at this stage, have high hopes that the revolution is spreading to Germany, but it doesn't because there are several things that happen. The, the new government is, it comes in and they're the social democrats and they quickly 
off a, a pact with the army saying that, you know, if you support us in government, I know we're Social Democrats don't like us very much, but we'll be the legitimate government of Germany, but we expect your loyalty and we will cooperate with you to put down the revolution. We, we will do that with fairly harsh measures if we have to. So they formed this pact, but that's a little bit down the way and they do that on the 10th of November, just before the armistice. Was there any truth to the rumour that the Navy, the German Navy was going to be sent on some sort of death lurch at the end? They were considering it, there's no doubt about that, but no final decisions had been made, but the word had got out about it, and uh, rumours in the military spread very, very quickly, and certainly the sailors believed that you know, this was going to be their fate, and it was a fate that they didn't welcome, and that's why they mutinied. Right, they didn't feel like waiting around to find out. No, um, exactly uh, not. <laughs> and taking part in a mutiny, this isn't small potatoes if you're in the military, is it? Were people executed? Uh, yeah, absolutely, and it actually continued. Absolutely, people paid the price for, for their uh, for their moment of uh, of standing up and saying, you know, we're not going to fight anymore. Um, particularly sailors and, and but many workers as well. Was the German Navy at all at sea seeing any action at this time? No, no, the, all the ships have been called back to port. They, they'd actually had very little action. Jumping ahead a little bit, the whole Navy will be in, interred and rather than hand over their vessels to the British Navy, they actually scuttle their own ships at Scarpa Flow in those ports in the, U, in the UK. So no, no action in the Navy at this stage and not looking forward to a final death ride as, as, as they thought was going to happen. There's still significant fighting on the Western Front, though, just a week out from Armistice, the Battle of the Sambra. Absolutely. The last big offensive of the British Expeditionary Force starts on the 4th of November and goes right through to the armistice to the 11th, named after one of the main obstacles they have to get across, the Samba Ois Canal, and they're attacking across that canal and down through into the Mormal Forest. Three British armies involved, the third of which the New Zealanders are in there, and the fourth and the first army. It will be the uh, British Expeditionary Force's final offensive, and it's a stunning success. During those uh, those few days, uh, in this last week, they advance over five miles. They capture more than 10,000 prisoners of war and over 300 guns. And as I always say, Graham, you know an army's in trouble if it loses its guns. It seemed to be a, a bit of a disgrace. And during this week, they capture 300 of them. And I think that's really indicative that the Germans are so close to collapse. Um, the only ones who seem to be fighting to the bitter end are the machine gunners and of course they always take a fearful toll but most of the other soldiers are overly offering token resistance and surrendering at the first opportunity that they can but this offensive actually leads to the collapse of the German army group north. Having said that there are no light casualties and the BF does suffer heavy casualties in its last campaign including a well-known uh, British poet or war poet, very well known now, not so well known at the time but a gentleman by the name of Wilfred Owen, whom I'm sure many people have heard about. Yeah. Oh, my word. Wilfred Owen, powerful mm. writer. Yeah, absolutely. Killed in forcing that canal I mentioned earlier on. Killed in early November. Unbelievable. Well, no, it is thoroughly believable. This, mm -hmm. this war is hell. Uh, when you think about it, I suppose it being shot on day ones is about as much fun as being shot on the last day but it does seem to have a type of um an effect on you when you hear that people died either yeah. on the last day or that sort of thing you know oh, if only um 
Now, this is, listeners may think I'm being indulgent, but I just think my great uncle, Arthur Hayter, he died in the last week of this war. And yeah. I often think about, oh, God, you know, the last week. We all thought he died after the war because the news didn't arrive mm. till after armistice. Mm. You know, everyone thought he was alive and the war had finished. Hooray. But no, he was shot. Yeah. And I found mm. his a military record and he can speak for anyone who was shot on either side actually for this but it'd be interesting mm -hmm. to know what kind of conflict the New Zealand forces were playing he was in the New Zealand forces at mm -hmm. this particular time he was on his military record it says he was shot and killed on this day 1918 yeah, I had a look at his record, and your great uncle was uh, in the 1st Rifle Battalion of the Rifle Brigade, and the Rifle Brigade is the uh, formation of the New Zealand Division that's involved in the liberation of Lekanwa. And your uncle is in the 1st Battalion. Uh, they are actually on the right flank of the New Zealand line, and so they are actually crossing a vital railway junction and pushing around the town's right flank. So the town's actually encircled by... Um, about 10.30 on the morning of of the 4th and of course it doesn't fall until the afternoon when the New Zealanders are able to scale one of the walls through a ladder but I can talk about that a bit later on but I think your uncle was killed on that morning in the fighting to get across that railway line because there was a stiff fight around that region and it took some time to actually get across that line and actually get around the town's edges or around the flank so Uncle Arthur was part of the liberation of Lekanwa, but unfortunately one of the casualties, one of the New Zealand casualties in taking that town and there were about 138 New Zealanders killed on that day 80 were from the Rifle Brigade in their assault on Lekanwa and your Uncle Arthur is, is one of those casualties It sounds a bitter uh, level of casualties given that the Germans are falling apart, isn't it? Uh, yeah, but as I say, there are no cheap victories on the Western Front. And I have to say, the 4th of November is actually seen as the New Zealand Division's most successful day on the Western Front. Not only do they liberate Lekanwa, but they also liberate several other villages. They advance over 10 kilometres, which is a hell of a distance in one day um, on the Western Front. They capture over 2,000 Germans and 60 field guns. And as I say, it, it's seen as their most successful day on the Western Western Front, but even successful days have casualties, and as I say, no cheap victories, and people are killed whether they're at Passchendaele, which is our disaster, or at Lekanwa, which is seen as one of our one of our great successes. Yep, yep. All right. Anything else you want to add about uh, the involvement on the Western Front on this November the fourth, our last weekend before that fateful day? Yeah, I do. I, I'll just say something about the liberation of Lekanwa. The town was invested and of course the uh, Germans refused to surrender and there were several attempts made and in actual fact a couple of Italians got through the gates but were driven out and it was finally taken by uh, Leslie Averill who managed to get uh, close to the wall with a group of men from the 4th Battalion of the Rifle Brigade, and actually climbed up a ladder and got and got up the wall. Fighters' revolver sent the defenders running, and it's described as one of the most dramatic moments in the division's history, and it and it is. But 
We should also remember that this is the last day of fighting for the New Zealanders uh, on the 4th and 5th of November in what has been a long, tough campaign with us from the 100 days beginning in August 1918 and going right through to November. So a long, tough campaign, and Lekinwar is a great achievement, but it is only one of many during 1918 for the New Zealand division. Glenn Harper, thank you so much. Glenn Harper from War Studies, Massey University. Next week is that fateful date, the 11th of the 11th, 100 years ago. And Wilfred Owen, we may as well go out with one of his works, Dolce Decorum Est. I haven't got the translation in front of me, but roughly, what is it? It's uh, how sweet and noble it is to die for your country. And I think the poem could be called Year Right. (laughs) Very good. Thanks, Graham. Pleasure as always. Thank you, Claire. Bent double like old beggars under sacks, knock-kneed, coughing like hags, we cursed through sludge, till on the haunting flares we turned our backs and towards our distant rest began to trudge. Men marched asleep. Many had lost their boots, but limped on, bloodshod. All went lame, all blind, drunk with fatigue, Deaf even to the hoots of tired, outstripped five-nines that dropped behind. Gas. Gas! Quick, boys! An ecstasy of fumbling, fitting the clumsy helmets just in time. But someone still was yelling out and stumbling and floundering like a man in fire or lime. Dim through the misty panes and thick green light, as under a green sea, I saw him drowning. In all my dreams before my helpless sight, he plunges at me, guttering, choking, drowning. If in some smothering dreams you too could pace behind the wagon that we flung him in and watch the white eyes writhing in his face, his hanging face like a devil sick of sin, if you could hear at every jolt the blood come gargling from the froth-corrupted lungs, obscene as cancer, bitter as the cud of vile, incurable sores on innocent tongues. My friend, you would not tell with such high zest to children ardent for some desperate glory. The old lie, dulce et decorum est, pro patria mori. This is the Weekend Variety Ones on Radio Live. Glenn Harper's uh, Jesus Make It Stop thing. Well, it's ours. Uh, it's going to be a podcast. It's uh, being wheeled out on Monday. All the details on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage.